Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, we'll be talking to Nicholas Walton about his new book, Singapore, Singapura, From Miracle to Complacency. This is a fascinating travelogue, history, and analysis of Singapore. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Uh, delighted to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Perhaps we could begin uh, by you telling a little bit about your own, about, about yourself and sort of your intellectual history and how you came about writing this book. Right. Well, um, I'm English. I, I'm originally from Newcastle, but lived around the world a bit when I was a, a kid. So I, I kind of developed a very wide um, horizon on, on the world and got fascinated in how the whole place knits together as children do. Um, and I hope that that's something that's informed my career all the way through. Uh, fundamentally, I'm a, I'm a journalist, but uh, that wasn't the original intention. Uh, I went to Oxford as, a, as, a, as an undergraduate and I studied politics, philosophy and economics. Um, and I got especially interested in the, uh, in, in the situation in both Latin America and in Africa. And my intention was always to take a very short break, learn a bit of Spanish and go back and do a postgrad. Uh, and see where that took me, uh, hopefully to one of those lovely studies with a tweed jacket and, and books all over the place where I could spend my time teaching people and, and learning more things about what I wanted to learn. But unfortunately for me, uh, I, I, I obviously had a bad sense of direction because instead of learning Spanish and, and going to Latin America for, for a year or two, I ended up in Hungary. Um, and uh, it wasn't too long after the wall came down. So it was a fascinating time to be out there. Um, I ended up with a Hungarian girlfriend who, who drove a Trabant car and I had a big typewriter and I ended up writing things for uh, a local radio station. And my perspective on life changed a little bit and I thought, my goodness me, this is even better than, than the wood-panelled uh, Oxford um, sort of Don life. Um, and so eventually I, I thought, OK, I'm going to learn to be a journalist. And I went back to Britain, eventually ended up being a trainee at the BBC uh, and I stayed in the BBC for 14 years, uh, and I was I was very lucky. I mean, every generation of journalists refers to the previous one as a bit of a golden generation, but um, at the time, you know, world news was taken very seriously. I, I spent most of that most of those 14 years in the BBC World Service, mostly doing radio, a bit of TV, and a few other bits and pieces. Uh, I did all manner of jobs. I worked through some some of the biggest stories of the of the um, of the post uh, post um, Cold War years. For instance, 9/11. I, I was working on that quite intensively. Kosovo War. Lots of other bits and pieces. I was correspondent in Sarajevo, uh, in Warsaw. I worked in Moscow during the uh, during the Second Iraq War, and I reported and made documentaries all over the place. Uh, places like Sierra Leone and Georgia and so on. So I had a varied life, a very rich life uh, as a journalist, but uh, I'm one of those people who also doesn't fit too neatly within many institutions. So after many years of, of kind of arm wrestling managers and wondering what I was going to do and, and uh, so on, I, I left and uh, worked for a foreign policy think tank. It was a bit of a startup called the European Council on Foreign Relations. Um, and I stayed there for four years in London. Uh, it was good fun quite baffling. And it was during the Europe, uh, during the Euro crisis, the financial crisis. So it's a very interesting time to be working on that. Uh, and then the, the um, Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings happened during those years as well. So that was all very interesting. 
Um, but again, maybe because I'm a bit footloose, I, I left uh, after four years. This time it was after the birth of my son uh, and we moved, uh, my, my wife and I moved to Genoa with, with my son. Uh, my wife's from Genoa, so it was part of her maternity leave and it was, it was good fun. And I, I decided this was the time to, to write a, a book about a tiny country that rose from unpromising beginnings to become a critical node in the emerging economy of the time and reinventing itself and then eventually finding out that it ran out of runway. Um, so I had a lot of fun there, but then we moved to Singapore. Um, and I was there for three and a half years. Originally, I was what was known as a trailing spouse. So I didn't have a formal job. And uh, I did lots of work there for all sorts of people. Uh, sports, TV work. I, I even did a bit of international uh, studies lecturing. But I also uh, worked for the Economist uh, Intelligence Unit, writing reports for them. But at that point, I thought, it's time to write another book about a tiny country that rose from unpromising beginnings to become a critical node in the emerging economy of the time, reinventing itself, and then see whether those questions um, suggested that this place would run out of um, runway itself. And that, and that book was, of course, about Singapore. So, so that's how I uh, that that that's kind of where I ended up doing that. Um, in terms of um, as you say, a bit of back, uh, academic hinterland. Um, I've been very interested in, the, in, in these questions of, of when things end. Um, you know, obviously you, you've got things like the, uh, the, the Roman Empire, how that started to fall apart. I'm, I'm at this minute, one of the books I'm reading is uh, the, uh, the Lutwak book on um, the grand strategy of the Byzantine Empire. And these things, they, sometimes they last for, 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 for just a, a handful of years, sometimes it's generations, sometimes it's hundreds of years. But of course, all things come to an end and it's trying to work out how you can actually spot these things in advance. Um, my current job is actually with the environmental think tank, the World Resources Institute. And of course, the questions of, of uh, societal uh, apocalypse and collapse are, are all around us when we start talking about the environment. So, uh, so these issues are still part of of, of kind of keep, what keeps me academically curious. Um, and those are the things that I, I threw at the book about Singapore. Your description of Genoa and of Singapore, just very briefly, of course, is almost identical. Yet you uh, subtitled your book "From Miracle to Complacency." Perhaps you can, could expand a little bit on why. Um, well, either way you look at Singapore, um, if you really sort of look at some of the, the metrics of success and so on, whether you're dealing with the 200 years since uh, Sir Stanford Raffles stepped ashore in um, literally 200 years from this year in 1819 or the, the time since the... Uh, since the reluctant independence of the place in 1965, either way you, you, you cut it, you're looking at a, a remarkable story of success. Um, one of the people I interviewed, uh, the eminent former diplomat, uh, Kishore Mabubani, he said that he was making the outrageous claim that it's the most successful country since records began. It's off the charts. Um, if you look at it back in 1965, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't just a the question of mud flats with a, a few British administrators. But it, it, it wasn't a remarkable place in terms of its success in, in you know, anything from GDP terms to, you know, um, education, social indicators or whatever. And it was a tiny place. And yet, if you look at it now, 
Um, the last time the PISA tests, the OECD tests on, on educational attainment were run, um, Singapore was top out of all countries in the world in all three. Its GDP per capita is quite extraordinary, especially when you remember that this is a place without natural resources. It's not Qatar or Norway or somewhere like that. This is a place that, that didn't have much to begin with in terms of natural resources. Um, and then if you look at all sorts of other indicators, whether, you know, uh, the crime is, 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 a, is a fantastic one. Um, these things suggest that this is a country that really is truly and utterly, as uh, Mabhavani says, off the, off the charts. Um, so a miracle has taken place in some way. Um, and I, when I arrived there, as I said, I had no formal job. So I spent a lot of time walking around the island with my one-year-old son in a pram, looking at things, examining things, meeting interesting people and always asking questions, as, you know, as a good journalist. And, um, you know, started to piece together what was my interpretation of what had made the country tick. What was it that that, that was the the recipe, the secret sauce that had that had created quite a, quite a remarkable place? And the more I looked at it, and the more I thought about it, the more questions came into my mind about okay. So if this is what's worked so far, will it work in the future? What's being done? Is this being recognised, and so on? And there were also other currents coming into my mind, and that was the. Um, the, the, the sense that what happens to a lot of places that are successful or, or even mildly successful for a while, one of the biggest things that comes in is not, you know, a barbarian invasion or a tsunami wave that wipes it from the earth. A lot of the time, it's a, it's a kind of a gradual, sometimes just complacency, sheer complacency. It's, it's a failure to adapt. It's, a, it's um, you know, a, a, a place can can even have a leadership that keeps trying not to be complacent and keeps trying to, to reinvent the place and, you know, plot a course through, through stormy seas. And sometimes the people become complacent because they're, you know, they're, they're, they, they become used to the success that they've had. There's no fire at their feet anymore. And this is certainly something that, that, that I began to recognise. I'm certainly not the only one. I mean, this is quite a well-recognised phenomenon in, in many circles in, in Singapore. And I started to, to recognize this and try and sort of piece together a bit of an argument. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm not a social, serv uh, a, a social um, scientist. I'm, I'm not a historian. Uh, the academic life, as I said, was something that despite going back to university to do a, a master's um, sort of when I was in my 30s, um, I, you know, the academic life is not something that I've that I've really plunged myself into. I'm a journalist. So I wanted to tell the story of the place, but also put down this bed of, of what the secret sauce, the recipe was that turned this country into something quite so remarkable. And then just ask these fundamental questions about its future. Um, so I hope that that's what the book's done. You know, in a sense, uh, one of the key concepts that Singaporeans and certainly Singaporean government officials will put forward is the concept of relevance that their success is at least in part grounded in the fact that they are relevant to their neighbors and relevant to the international community. And so the question that you're really asking is um, whether, uh, whether Singapore can retain its relevance. Yes, yes, uh, but relevance changes. Um, again, sorry to return to the, to the, uh, 
to, to, to Genoa. But for instance, with Genoa, um, it helped to knit together the, the early medieval uh, economy. It, like Venice, and they, they, they were big rivals, but they also shared the work in, in connecting the, the, the Europe that was starting to discover itself after what, what are broadly known as the Dark Ages, uh, and especially the big industrial centres that were starting to grow up in places like northern Italy and, and Germany and, and so on, and, and Flanders. Uh, they were knitting those together with the trade routes that linked it to the Silk Roads um, and the, the places in the, um, in, in, you know, hidden away past the Black Sea on the great Eurasian continent. Um, and then the world kept evolving. Large polities like uh, France and, and Habsburg Spain started to, to emerge. And, and then the, the, the Genoese, there was a bit of reinvention. They plugged themselves into the Habsburg um, uh, cross-Atlantic uh, trade, uh, bringing silver back from, from the, um, the mines of Potosi and other places in, in Latin America. And, you, you know, basically forming financial instruments that then allowed the Habsburg to fight wars in, in the Low Countries. So they, they kept reinventing themselves and they had to because the circumstances change. Um, and then, of course, the Spanish, you know, ended up pretty much bankrupt and, uh, and then they kept running out of road. Uh, and that's, that's the Genoese story. Now, the, um, in, in a nutshell and, and a bit bastardized, but the, the thing with, um, the thing with Singapore is it worked very well kind of as, as an imperial node for Britain. Um, it had the China trade, things like opium became very important. Um, it was a, it was a, a obviously it had a, a certain eminence as the, the kind of lodestar of the East for, uh, as a, in terms of imperial protection in the years leading up to the Second World War. Um, and then if you look at the post-1965 years with the PAP um, and Lee Kuan Yew, they, you know, with the with the help of the the, the Dutch um, economist Albert Winsemius, who helped to reconstruct Rotterdam in the years after the Second World War, they came up with a, a plan to really leverage the, as you say, the relevance of, of Singapore, its geographical inheritance, and work out, well, what can we do to, to make the most of this? And, and, you know, it was a, in some ways, you can look at a map and say it's fairly obvious, but actually being able to knit together the plan and, and the, the sense of purpose and, and galvanize a population to do this um, is not easy. And that original um, kind of geographic inheritance was also very difficult. It was, it was not a friendly neighborhood that, uh, that the independent Singapore was born into. But then they reinvented themselves as circumstances changed. Um, countries move up the value chain. This is what um, China's doing now, you know, and, th and there are very large questions about what China does uh, with its economy and, and how to repurpose the economy. What do you do with internal demand? Uh, are you still the, the kind of workshop of the world as China has been for the last 20 years or so? Probably more. Um, and the... The, the, the Singaporean government was very effective. I mean, it wasn't without its problems. And sometimes it's only when something goes wrong that you're able to recalibrate and, and rethink and start again. Um, and the, the, you know, the, the original um, emphasis on, on industry and so on 
then developed into an emphasis on on developing Singapore as a as a petrochemical hub, hub uh, which is still very important. It took advantage of the fact that uh, you know the, the the Middle East oil from the Middle East was just became post war so critical to the world economy. Um, and at the same time, you had uh, the Vietnam War. Then you had Japan rising. You had Korea rising. You had China rising. Uh, the East Asian tigers. You've you had a very benign situation, but where the different factors were changing, and, and Singapore was able to adapt. It, 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 for instance, in the late '90s, it switched to uh, it switched its educational system around. There were a couple of economic setbacks, and it worked out what to do. It became a financial hub. And what was what I find ingenious about Singapore is that its relevance to this to to, to the area was also enhanced by a real technocratic um, uh, recognition of detail. Uh, for instance, uh, if you if you look at a, a couple of the more striking things, you had back back in. Um, uh, 1988, you had a, a really bad crime problem. You had 50,000 crimes, almost 50,000 crimes. And in 2016, after a very concerted and, and deliberate attempt to tackle the, the crime problem, to make the place more suitable as a, as a kind of hub for multinationals who really wanted to service Southeast Asia and East Asia more generally, um, by 2016, that 50,000 crimes a year had fallen so dramatically that there are 135 days in the year that had no reported crime whatsoever. Um, you had the chewing gum ban, the, that kind of emblematic chewing gum ban, which a lot of people remember Singapore for. That was only brought in in 1992. And that was part of this concerted effort to just wipe out everything. It was zero tolerance. It was, you know, people were putting chewing gum on the sensors that closed the doors of the MRT, mass rapid transit system. Um, and there was just this decision, right, well, let's get rid of chewing gum. And that was the kind of technocratic, quite controlling government decision that uh, Singapore became good at. And my favourite of all of these was after the SARS epidemic in the in the early 2000s. Again, the situation was changing. East Asia, Southeast Asia had a bit of a, a, a bad international reputation, which, of course, was very bad if you were setting yourself up as a place for, for rich highly skilled, highly mobile um, expats from around the world to come to to service the multinationals, um, they decided in 2002 that one of the keys to unlocking this, especially after the bad bad press of the SARS epidemic, was to uh, invigorate the, the, the nightlife economy. And part of that was they decided, and this was even sanctioned by the Prime Minister in a National Day speech, they decided that they were going to have dancing on tables in bars, and they set up a committee um, that was able to go around the world investigating exactly how people danced on tables in bars around the world, how it could be done safely, what, what were the risks. You know, they probably drew up lots of very clever charts about, you know, the, the possibilities, the opportunities, the risks, etc. And then they came back and they drew up guidelines. And this was, a, a again, a perfect example of how how Singapore's relevance isn't just something that uh, that sits on a map. It's something that's very alive and very, very attuned to the to the changing situation, and that's the genius of Singapore. It's not just the fact that it's geographically got a fantastic inheritance; it's the leveraging of that inheritance, which has been a, a key part of the miracle. Indeed, um, sticking with Genoa for a second, if you compare the the history of Genoa and the development of Singapore and particularly look at the decline of Genoa, are there things that Singapore can learn or has not learned from, from that experience? 
I suppose that uh, actually this is this is um, this is something that I, I spoke about with uh, Kishore Mabubani when I when I was visiting him, and we were talking about Genoa after the interview and after I t- turned the microphone off and and uh, and I was comparing the two and he was saying, well, Genoa declined for 500 years. If Singapore ends up declining for 500 years, maybe that's not too bad a thing. You know, how long does a country last for anyway? Um, So I think that there's an element where you have to uh, almost accept a bit of fate. Uh, You're not going to be the world's most vigorous um, country, you know, a small country forever. And when you're a small country, there comes a point where maybe you have to accept that certain things are changing. And there might be a reinvention again in, in the future. For instance, uh, in, to take the Genoese case, uh, after that initial flourishing um, in you know, 1100, 1200 and so on, uh, there was a period of decline um, as bigger states started forming around. And you know, Genoa just couldn't, couldn't keep track of that. Uh, Venice did for a lot longer. Um, and then that reflourishing uh, you know, as as the bankers for the for uh, the Habsburg Spanish, that was a lot later on, and that was under the galvanizing um, influence of a very remarkable man called Admiral Doria. Um, so these things aren't aren't linear. Now, where where Singapore is now, it does actually face. Uh, no, no, go ahead. I interrupted you. Sorry. <clears throat> Uh, uh, no, okay, just a very, very small point, and that is that uh, yes, the circumstances have changed, but the, the 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 situation has remained benign for a good amount of time. You know, the international order has been stable, even if the Cold War was rumbling on and so on. Uh, there's been peace. There's trade has flourished. East Asia has has risen. Northeast Asia has risen. Um, the international order has has been maintained, um, etc. And you know the people have still needed to ship um, petrol and oil and gas from the Middle East through to East Asia and beyond. Uh, now those things are the things, those kind of macro factors. Now if they start to change, maybe Singapore will face a period of decline if it can't cope and if it can't reinvent. Maybe it finds a way to kind of sit out a few decades and then reinvigorate itself, reinvent itself. And come back fighting as Genoa did under Admiral Doria. Uh, as I was reading your book, I thought there was not only a comparison to uh, Genoa, but also a comparison to Israel on, on various levels. You uh, speak in the book about the brain import and the fact that key Singaporean institutions were created by minorities like the Armenians, the Jews, Yemenis. Um, Israel, of course, benefited enorm from uh, from a from a brain import. Uh, you also hinted, sort of, at it. You know, you, when you said um, that later generations get used to the wealth and 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 the and the standards of living, and and that and and that you get a sense of in, emerging entitlement, if you wish, but also a loss of sense of pioneering, which is could be said about Israel. Tr- True. Uh, also, and finally, in terms of security perspective, it strikes me that Singapore and Israel have sort of very similar outlooks. They worry continuously, and they worry about their neighbors. In Singapore's case, of course, Malaysia, partly determined by common history, and Indonesia by size and the fact that it is the world's largest Muslim country. 
I, I think that that's exactly right. And, um, you know, one of the themes in my book um, and the structure of the book is, is built around that initial kind of 53-kilometer walk that I did in one day across, across the country. Um, and as well as allowing me to structure the book and as well as providing a bit of a narrative arc that always helps, uh, it was... It, it, it was deliberate. It was there to to, to show that single uh, unalterable fact that Singapore is a very small place. It doesn't have strategic depth, uh, just like uh, Israel, uh, and just like several other uh, very vital little states that have risen in the in the past. Um, but uh, the, the, the Israel case is is very interesting because, of course, it's a way of interpreting its politics and its its foreign policy. Obviously, with the United States, it's a way of a kind of achieving a, a, a both a sense of vitality, but also achieving a kind of an artificial sense of that strategic depth. Um, a country like uh, Russia or Italy, um, it can it can afford to you know lose lose the plot a little bit. Uh, really, kind of not get anywhere for, for decades, for generations. And it'll still be there, you know, provided that the, the, international, um, the international situation is, is relatively benign and, and things don't completely and utterly collapse. There, there will be a Russia uh, or there will be an, an Italy, no matter what happens to GDP. Uh, now, Israel and, uh, and uh, Singapore, you're right. There is this sense that if they don't renew themselves, if, if they don't find a new way to be able to deal with, the, with just the sheer tiny size that they have, this lack of strategic depth, this lack of, um, the, uh, this, this lack of the comfort blanket of being large, then, then, then they are doomed. It's not just a sort of comfortable retirement, but they have to, they have to keep peddling and, and, you know, and, and keep that uh, fresh blood coming in, that sense of vulnerability, that sense of purpose. Um, again, there's, a, there's, the, there's the thought that the, the sense of purpose might be the big thing that's missing in, in Singapore. What is it in the future? I mean, the government can bring in new bits of the economy, like the, uh, you know, the, the way it's tried to invigorate the, the knowledge economy. It has this area called One North. It has uh, some increasingly world-class universities. It has this financial sector where it has a, a, a real strong emphasis on seeing what can be done in fintech and, and so on. And that, that's all very interesting. But does, does that actually filter through to the population? Is is there a sense of inequality and the inequality? Does that breed anger, resentment? How does it deal with that for, for a fairly technocratic, relatively authoritarian democracy? Does that mean that the government runs out of legitimacy in, in the in the day of, uh, you know, in these days of social media where people are able to express their discontent? There's a bit more identity politics around. What does that mean for a very uh, multi, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious um um, political unit. Um, how, how does it cope with all of those uh, challenges and pressures? And, and these are very real. And small countries fascinate me because they they get these they get these questions right, or they really just face oblivion in the long run. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Are you listening to this NBN episode on Himalaya? If you are, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've tried a lot of podcast apps, and I can tell you that Himalaya is the best one available. 
So if you're not listening to this NBN episode on Himalaya, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists and collections made just for you, along with personalized recommendations to help with content discovery. And the best part is, it's super easy to use. It's definitely my favorite listening app, and I'm sure it'll be yours too. So do yourself a favor and download Himalaya today. And be sure to subscribe to your favorite NBN channel. We have 87 of them, so you're probably going to find what you want there. And I hope that you listen to what you want on Himalaya. There's another aspect. <clears throat> sorry. There's another aspect of Singapore and Singaporean history that you uh, describe that also in, in a different way is true for Israel. And that is that the lack, the lack of a sense of victimhood. So Singaporeans have less of an attitude towards their colonial history as having been victims and more a sense of continuity and values and interests that drove uh, Stamford Raffles when he landed on the island in 1819. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But it is quite a complex uh, issue. I mean, you've you're there now and you'll have seen that when you had the 200th anniversary back in January of um, of uh, Raffles turning up there, there was this sense that we need to connect it to the to the uh, kind of the deeper history of, of Singapore as a part of the of the Malaysian of the Malay world, Southeast Asia, etc. Um, and there was also this this narrative that uh, some people detect very strongly in what the People's Action Party, which has been in control, obviously, of independent uh, Singapore since its establishment, that the, the miracle is all due to the PAP and the wisdom of and drive of, of Lee Kuan Yew and his genius. Um, and, you know, there is an element of that that's correct. But uh, if you, if I think most sensible people say, well, post-65 Singapore is very different from what was there before because it was a, it was a colonial outpost. But at the same time, the type of vision that uh, Stanford Raffles had, the way that the, the that Singapore developed under the East India Company and then the British Empire was something that gave it quite a remarkable inheritance by 1965. This kind of set of very good institutions, very durable institutions, the rule of law, the idea that, that trade um, and flexibility and dynamism could be at the heart of really leveraging what we've been talking about, this, this relevance, not just to the region, but, but to uh, global patterns of trade. Um, that is, is, is something that, uh, that, that, Singapore, that defines Singapore now. Um, as for the sense of victimhood, I think that I, I detected a bit of victimhood developing. And maybe it's because there aren't those, you know, much more, um, much more kind of real, um, real is not necessarily the word, much more visceral, uh, a, a much more visceral sense of, of deep vulnerability. You know, in 1965, lots of things could have gone wrong that, that could have ended the, the country as a, as a viable place. Uh, now that's not going to happen, but there is a bit of resentment uh, building up. Um, I spoke about this in my book, for instance, during the walk, I passed somewhere, um, a bit of context first, uh, about 85% of people in Singapore live in what are called housing development board buildings. Uh, they're all, all built by the government. Fundamentally, they're owned by the government, but they're leased. Uh, so people buy the lease, usually 99 year lease from the government. And this is 85% of the population have that. Um, now, 
in, gosh, I can't remember, going back a, at least 10 years, probably a bit more, there was something built called the Pinnacle at Duxton. And I walked past it on my walk across the island. And this was meant to be an aspirational HDB. It was right on the edge of the very, very center of town. It had spectacular views south across the uh, across to the islands of Indonesia and north across the whole of the, the, the island of Singapore. It was very swanky. It had uh, rooftop running tracks. It was 50 floors high. It had, um, it was several towers all joined together by these special sky links. It was, it was quite, quite a remarkable building. And I, a friend of mine has a, a flat in there. So I've been in there a couple of times. Uh, now this was developed because there was this sense that the, um, Singaporeans were getting resentful that there was a glass ceiling that they kept bumping their heads above. Uh, it's fine owning a, um, being one of the 85% who owns a flat in an HDB, but how do you make the leap from that to one of the increasingly vastly expensive private condominiums uh, or even houses and villas across the island? Most people can never do that. The, the costs are just ast astronomical. So most people feel as though they're shut out of this, um, this very swanky lifestyle. Uh, they look at, um, at, at aspirations like owning a car. Now, owning a car in, in Singapore is not an easy thing. Uh, it's strictly controlled by the government to prevent the place just being a, an endless morass of traffic jams like Jakarta or, or uh, Bangkok. And that's worked very well, but it means that most people are priced out of owning a car. Um, and what about the jobs? Well, people look around and they see a lot of the, a lot of the jobs are still uh, expats from abroad, people like my wife, I suppose, and, and many of the friends I had there, they were foreigners. We knew some Singaporeans in these senior jobs, but a lot of them were simply imported into the country, you know, with the multinationals. Uh, and a lot of the, the, the kind of junior and middle ranks are where the Singaporeans sat, wondering if they would ever break through the, the glass ceiling to become, you know, one of the people that ran the companies. And of course, a lot of the best performing um, Singaporeans uh, academically are siphoned off into the increasingly, uh, into the ever effective public service. So, you know, you don't see many Singaporeans running the companies, or at least as many as you would imagine that there would be there. Uh, and then you have uh, rich foreigners like uh, people from China and, and Indonesia who've made millions and millions and millions buying up entire tower blocks um, of, uh, of, of new condominiums, often not even living there, and every so often turning up to race their, their Ferraris in the streets, often with catastrophic uh, um, consequences. And a lot of Singaporeans, as a result, they are developing a sense of resentment. So, so there isn't that, that, that sense... Um, that they have enemies in the world around them, but there's a sense that there is actually something going wrong and they can put a, a vague idea onto that. And that I think is, is, is the answer to where, to, to your question and where that's going now. You, you touched on a number of issues that I wanted to, to raise with you. Uh, one is no doubt there's a glass ceiling and no doubt there is some degree of resentment. But it strikes several things strike me. One is that uh, uh, if Singapore has a trauma, it's not colonial history or persecution. It's what you mentioned, 1965, race riots. And so one of the key issues and real sensitivities in the country is intercommunal relations. And you see contradictions there, and you describe that also, where you have racial profiling in, in rental ads, yet uh, what is said about inter about communities and intercommunal relations 
is in a sense very strictly controlled. The other the other question that I have, and that goes also into the housing uh, issue, is that at the it strikes me that at the end of the day, you'll hear a lot of grumbling from Singaporeans, but they all have a stake in society, and it's a kind of stake which uh, would persuade them not to rock the boat. You know, they may want to see more opposition in Parliament. They may want to see greater transparency on certain things, but they're not. They're, they're, they've got too much to lose. To yeah, I think that you're dead the right there. Um, but uh, you know, boats can be rocked not necessarily from from a single kind of everyone swelling to running to one side of the boat and the whole thing capsizing. They can just sort of gradually get in rockier seas and and you know more difficult to to control and those little kind of little tremors of one person shuffling around on their seat in rockier seas can, can upset the whole thing i mean I'm, I'm i'm i think i'm torturing the metaphor a little bit there but uh but fundamentally i think that this is something that that terrifies um terrifies the government uh and has terrified the government all the way th- through i mean th- th- there is this you wouldn't say the spectre of communal violence, but communal friction is something that I think people often point to. And I know it's a bit of a, an overused trope by many journalists, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. But talking to tra- taxi drivers can be very revealing about this. And taxi drivers, I think increasingly, they, they, you, know, that you do find people, you know, whether it's a, a Malaysian chap or a Chinese chap or a, an Indian chap uh, from these different the three main ethnicities, you do find them quite freely bad-mouthing people. Uh, and this sense that there is just an un- undercurrent of, of people just saying things that they might not have said in the past, um, this becomes extremely difficult in, in 2019, where social media has a uh, plays a role. It magnifies things. It means that the kind of muttered thing under somebody's breath suddenly is put out into the open air. You know, you know whenever there's a whenever there's a, a, a big scandal uh, and someone sends a death threat to someone else and the police investigate. That's what happens here in Britain. And actually, it's the it's the type of idiot who might have said, "Well, I hope you die" or whatever to a to a politician and, and wrote a uh, something down and mutters it to his friends in the pub. Now he puts it on Twitter. And of course, it, it's taken seriously by the police, whereas, quite frankly, it's just nonsense. Well, the same kind of the same kind of dynamic could be at work in in Singapore. You know, the type of person who who might you know mutter something under his breath about um, you know the, the people down the hall whose cooking smells. They might now put it on social media, um, and then it becomes an issue in a way that it wasn't in the in the in the world that I grew up in. Um, and and the world before social media became such an influence. So I think that that's a a bit of a danger. Um, And that also means that you you end up going from, you know, keeping this straight is a bit of a game of chess anyway for the government, but then you end up with a kind of multi-dimensional game of chess that the government's got to play to be able to, to keep all of these things, all of the pressures and all of the just everyday bits of friction that are, that are part of normal life. They have to stop it blowing up. Um, one thing that I, I, I mentioned in the book is where um, uh, 2017, I think it was, uh, they, they were, there was going to be the election of the, of the next president, um, and it was decided um, that it was a very, very good idea, perhaps with a nod to the 
pressures that we're talking about, if that president was from a different ethnic community. Um, the three ethnic communities, uh, so the idea went, should, should you know, if they hadn't had the presidency for a while, then they should get the presidency this time. Uh, now there had been a, a, a South Asian origin uh, person in the presidency, there'd been Chinese people in the presidency. So under this new idea, the idea was, okay, well, this time we're going to have a Malay person in the presidency. Um, and there was um, a, a bit of scouting around to find the best uh, candidate. And there was a, a really good candidate called Halima Yaakob. Um, and uh, she was put forward. And there was a lot of grumbling on social media, including from the Malay community, saying, well, why do we need special treatment? This is, you know, and it became a, a, a bit of an issue. But then, you know, th there was this sense that the government couldn't, stop itself from trying to rig the game a little bit further in its favor. Um, and eventually uh, the, the original potential cast of candidates was completely and utterly cut down uh, by changes in the electoral law, saying that instead of just being a, either a senior political figure or having run a, a public company of X million pounds or dollars or whatever, the figure same suddenly became enormously large, and and suddenly the last person who might have been standing against uh, Ms. Jacob um, was was pulled out, had to pull out of the race because suddenly they didn't fit the criteria. So suddenly, uh, from the point of having this really good Malay female candidate who would have done a really good job in a country where most people, as you say, still implicitly think that that you know, there is this tacit acceptance that the PAP is running things still very well. Uh, and she would probably have won the election quite comfortably. But rather than risk it, the government overmanaged it. It was almost too, um, it was, it, it was almost too keen not to be complacent. And it overmanaged it in a way that made the many people in the make, Malay community sort of sit up and say, hang on, we feel as though this is almost some kind of, of handicap scheme that you're running here. I'm, uh, I'm using my own probably badly chosen words. But, you know, is, is it really so bad for the Malay community that we can only win a, a race when you nobble all of the all of the opposition like this? And it meant that there was a real, what I thought of as, as a bit of a falling off of legitimacy of the, the PAP way of running things. Uh, and I think that that represents the biggest challenge to them in the future. This this kind of coming together of social media that allows people to be able to vent their opinions that they might have kept private or, you know, spoken about in their kitchen at home in the past. And this sense that that there is still this need for control at the at the higher level by the by the government um, and pulling all of these levers and, and trying to play these multi multi-dimensional games of chess. You know, you're lucky if you string quite a few victories together, but at some point you're going to get something wrong and, you know, all you need is a bit of identity voting emerging or, or some kind of knock to the country um, that causes people to wonder whether, you know, ju just those people at the margins of, of, of voting for the PAP to knock their, their belief in how everything's going or the belief that, that the status quo can be upheld and that the, I suppose, any any incipient friction between the different communities or religions can be held in check. I think that that represents a very real threat to the to the country. And while while I speak about these, I in no way suggest that I could do a better job. <laughs> these are easy, easier things to identify than fix. <laughs> there, there is a related risk which you see 
uh, playing out in Singapore, which is, one, the rise of identity politics globally and the rise of basically civilizational leaders. And you see that now, you know, if, if the concern over the last 10 years, 15 years, was particularly the risk of radicalization at the fringe of the Muslim community, you're now also seeing a much more assertive um, evangelist community. Yes, yes. And there was, um, sorry, I, I can't remember. There was, uh, I, I touch a bit upon the, upon the Christian community when I talk about the, uh, the that, that church that ran into all sorts of scandals. But yes, there is, um, there, there, there are claims to identity that go beyond the state. And obviously social media can help to organize this. The, the growth of, of new uh, voices such as an evangelical community or, or more extreme versions of Islam, which may be imported for, from outside. And, uh, and we know that uh, not just in Singapore, but regionally, there were people who took part in some of the conflicts that have happened in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria. So, so, you know, there are people being influenced by this. Uh, you've also got uh, worries that uh, you know, some of the uh, migrant workers, the, the lower skilled workers, some of the people from Bangladesh, for instance, have been uh, uncovered apparent uh, um, extremist communities within a small number of those. Um, so these things are all are all knocking around. Um, again, I don't really know what, what to do about it. Uh, uh, one thing I did speak about was, um, uh, and this this feeds it more into identity politics in general rather than rather than the religious um, divisions. Uh, but uh, the Pink Dot Festival, which was this um, celebration of the gay, uh, the LGBT uh, community, um, every year in Honglin Park in the in the center of, of the of the center of the, the downtown. Um, I remember going along there. In the first year, um, my, my wife had certain friends that uh, that were part of it, um, and it, it was a very interesting thing to be part of. You know, to go along, you had all of the all of these chaps in um, pink t-shirts, and Honglin Park was a bit of a celebration of this other identity, which um, you know, on the on the legal books, was not necessarily as well accepted as it, as it is in in certain Western countries. Um, but gradually there's been a bit of a crackdown on, on that. Um, and the, you know, foreign companies are no longer allowed to sponsor it. There are now laws that if you are foreign, if you're not a Singaporean, uh, you're not allowed to even loiter in that area on pink dot day. This is, these are certainly the rules when I left a, a couple of years ago. Um, and this was a sense that this was a, um, it was a, 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 gave people a sense of identity that may be created again. I suppose there was a, a religion came into it because there was the sense that certain communities, the especially the more religious, um, uh, older people, particularly in the Malay community, the the Muslim community, uh, were would be would find this very uncomfortable if it if it was too visible. Uh, but there was there was this sense that you can deal with identity politics by um, by kind of putting pressure on people by stopping it. For, by, by bringing in rules, by, uh, in, you know, cutting things off at the margin. Um, and that, I think, is, is something that uh, Singapore will struggle to do with identity politics in, in the future. We've seen it affect so many people here in Europe, affect the United States most obviously, but I, I think that Singapore is not immune. 
Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I have no idea how it. I, I want to come back to something you said at the beginning of this conversation, where you were talking about education, knowledge economy. One of the things that has always struck me was that uh, Singapore, in contrast, for example, to the Gulf states, the contrast not only being that Singapore did not have resources, which the Gulf states did, but was much more that Singapore certainly today is sort of a, a, a hybrid between a controlling state and, and a democracy. But most importantly, Lee Kuan Yew certainly had a vision for the country rather than for the ruling party or the ruling family. And uh, the education system, in a sense, was geared towards empowering people, which, again, the, uh, the education system in the Gulf certainly isn't. And that that was what really why Singapore became a success story, and the Gulf states, in many ways, are not success stories. They're, you know, uh, admired, envied, whatever, for the amount of money and wealth that they have, but not much beyond that. Yeah, uh, the education system in. Uh, I I, I wrote a paper for the Economist Intelligence. Actually, I wrote several papers about education for the Economist Intelligence Unit. And um, Singapore, of course, is 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 a paradigm in in some aspects. Uh, but as you say, there is an element of, of control. There's a, an element of tradition. Uh, but it's interesting to see how it all evolved into this kind of seemingly all conquering system that they have now. Um, the education system seems to me to have always been calibrated towards the national goals. So there was a, a great emphasis on the kind of technical qualifications needed uh, when heavy industry was, was the, the thing um, and so on. And now, uh, you know, the, the very high levels of, of mathematical uh, excellence in the Singaporean system have been pointed quite squarely at the at the type of services that uh, Singapore is at this very moment excelling in. Um, you know, it has a the, the financial sector, for instance, is is uh, still uh, it, it is one of the financial sectors of, of the world. And in terms of its geography, you know, China will continue to struggle in 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 some areas because of the nature of its uh, its economy and its political system and its openness to the rest of the world and its currency. And obviously, Hong Kong has got all sorts of questions that it will have to answer um, after 2019 is over. So, you know, you have this sense that there's a that the economy adapts to deal with its situation. Uh, and it is quite empowering in that, you know, people then go and get jobs and um, and the very best of them are hoovered up by the by the by the uh, public sector. And, you know, you find extremely capable Singaporeans all over the world in all sorts of, of, of jobs now. But they once again are at a bit of an inflection point. Uh, there is this sense that the knowledge economy needs a different type of education. Um, when I was doing these papers for the EIU, I, you know, a lot of people were, were talking about, well, what does the, what does education need to be to fit the economy of the, of the mid and late 21st century? Um, and ideas kept popping up about creativity, teamwork, initiative, the ability to fail, uh, the ability to learn from mistakes, etc. And this is where people pointed to the Singaporean system as maybe creaking a bit. And 
And certainly on an anecdotal level, uh, I often spoke to uh, colleagues, uh, mainly expats, but not just expats, um, who I played football with once a week in Singapore. And many of them were involved in hiring people. And the government kept in, in, you know, bringing in new rules for what you had to do, how many, you know, boxes you had to tick. And it, the emphasis was, was definitely on look at Singaporeans first, try and hire Singaporeans first. And it was much more difficult to hire new expats. And many of them were saying, well, ultimately, you don't get the flexibility of mind that we need in senior positions if you go for, for many products of the Singaporean education system. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to succeed. There's parents behind the scene who send kids off to the tutorial colleges from very early on in the morning. They go to school. They learn things. They come home. They learn more things. They do homework and then they go to bed. Um, and, there, you know, there's not the rule for the – there's not the space for the – you know, some of the softer skills that are going to be critical in the future, the, the, the creativity, the communication skills, the ability to being able to be able to, you know, to use the old cliche, think outside the box. Um, and this is the these, I think, are, are the critical questions for the Singaporean education system. And they're trying to they're trying to fix it. They are running pilot schemes, or at least they were when I, when I was looking at these situations. Um, they're, they're trying to find ways in which to bring out teamwork rather than, you know, overt competition between people over the highest grades. Uh, try and f allow people to find ways to fail and learn from it and fail and feel comfortable with the fact that, you know, if you set up a new company, you're going to face failure uh, as much as you're going to, you know, it's like that, that old cliche about S Silicon Valley that you only ever deal with people who've, who've failed once or twice already, otherwise they haven't learned enough. Um, and I think that there's this sense that Singapore really needs to replumb its education system, and it's doing it in a in in a typically clever technocratic way. Uh, in many ways, the you know you're you're not unwise if you back them to succeed. Um, but this is a, a question of mentality, a question of mentality of the parents of the of the whole system and how it's been set up. Um, so if the, if the Singaporean education system is going to be as effective, and, and you're dead right in what you were saying in your question, um, empowering people to succeed in the latest iteration of the, of the Singaporean success story, uh, then this is the big challenge ahead. You mentioned geography, and perhaps we can briefly return to that. Uh, much of Singapore's success was, of course, leveraging its geography. Uh, yet what we're seeing now is one, that geography is becoming less of a decisive factor uh, in today's world, and it's also becoming a, a liability to some degree in terms of the great power rivalries that we're having, the reshaping of a new world order. Yeah, <laughs> Um, it's it, it, it's a big question. Uh, can that geographical inheritance turn into something a bit sour in a world where technology has obviously shrunk the world? Uh, hydrocarbons being dug up out of the ground in the Middle East no longer need to be shipped quite so far around the world, partly because people are finding other ways in which to power themselves. Um, obviously, the rise of China uh, and developing into something beyond what it was when Deng Xiaoping pressed the start button all those years ago, uh, means that China is a different place. It doesn't need to suck in quite so much. Um, it's developing its own um, it, 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 its own demand, internal demand, so it'll be exporting less in the future. Um, you're developing financial service centers elsewhere. Um, 
Singapore is a very expensive place. If you're one of those multinationals that flock to to um, Singapore, you know, in the when when we turned up or, or 10, 15 years ago, do you really need to to base people there? Jakarta's, you know, well, Jakarta's obviously sinking as we heard, sorry, in the, in the news recently, but Jakarta is now a place where you can live a perfectly good life as an expat. You can go to Bangkok, you can go to lots of places. A lot of uh, people, a lot of companies are looking for, for places elsewhere in the region, for things that they have to keep in the region. And then they're taking things completely offshore, like the um, you know customer relations. Well, if you need that, you can you can base that in the Philippines instead. You know, a lot of uh, British companies have got uh, call centers in the Philippines and in India because people speak English there. You don't need things like that in in Singapore. Um, so more and more things that may have been at the center of of um, making of leveraging that that geographical inheritance, maybe they're just not as they're not going to be focused on Singapore anymore. Um, it will keep some geographical inheritance. There will always be international trade, but you know it'll have shocks, whether through trade wars or wars, or it'll just change in its nature. Um, and there'll also be uh, a need for you know because of time zones, something as simple as time zones. Um, London has similar inheritance for its financial sector. Singapore has a very enviable time zone. It picks up when um, when West Coast uh, USA sort of starts falling asleep, and it, it's a great financial center for that time zone in in East and Southeast Asia uh, before it starts getting towards places like Dubai and, and the sun comes up over Europe. So it's it's a mixed question, and again, it just goes back to can they adapt? Can they can they rethink and, and recalibrate? Nicholas, I had many more questions and issues I wanted to raise with you, but unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our time. Uh, what I before I let you go, though, I would like you to talk a little bit about what your next project is and what you're looking at, where you go from here. Ah, uh, now the. <laughs> it's a difficult thing because in my life I've, I've discovered that there are three big things, one of which is um, is my family, uh, which I, I think is the most important by a long way. The next is is having a job. And the third bit is being able to, to work on fantastic projects like writing a book, which is, uh, which is great. Now, in my life, I've discovered that you can only really write a book if you've got two of these. Uh, you can only do two of these things. Um, three things all at once and the world will collapse. Um, so unless something happens, for instance, if I get fired from my job, I can't see myself being able to write a book for a while. Um, I still have a load of ideas stored up in my head. Um, luckily, I'm working in a very interesting area with, with all of these um, societal tipping points about uh, uh, with the with the World Resources Institute and looking at all the, these different aspects of the environment. So that is keeping me busy. Uh, living up in the Netherlands, again, to return to that theme that, that um, sat through the books on Singapore and Genoa, once again, I found myself living in a, in a very peculiar, relatively small country that, that really has had a, a bit of a golden age in the past, back in the sort of 1625 to 1675 time, and then kind of fell out of, uh, historically, it fell out of, um, uh, out of circulation uh, as a big player. Um, and it, it waned for, for many centuries. And then suddenly, the Netherlands of, of, that I find myself living in now, in the, in the lovely little town of Delft, uh, is once again, it, it's, it's at the center of a lot. It's at the center of uh, Europe and, and is a very vibrant economy. But also as the environment changes, it's at the center of, of a lot of 
things that the world is going to have to think about a lot in the future. Uh, geographically, its inheritance is in some ways comparable to Bangladesh, but whether through governance, money, uh, know-how, technology, it deals with being at the end of a lot of river, long rivers with big deltas. Uh, where I'm sitting now is probably about a meter below sea level. Uh, out towards the Hague, you've got uh, these massive sand dunes. You've got just south of me in Rotterdam, you've got these things that uh, the Delta Works projects, which uh, which prevent the the floods from from enveloping the country every time the, the Rhine and other major rivers uh, come down too quickly, and there's too much water coming upstream from the North Sea, uh, and a lot of the country is still below sea level, and they've had to adapt. So this country is fascinating, and again, there are questions about well, this will be fascinating now. What about the Netherlands in 50 years' time? What about if the worst comes to the worst? Will the Netherlands still be above sea level and dealing with these and flourishing in a hundred years time or whatever. So that's what I would like to write. But while I have my family, of course, and then while I am gainfully employed and enjoying having a monthly paycheck, I, I think I'll just have to put that on ice for now. Indeed, Nicholas, having read your book on Singapore, it would be a crime if you don't write the book on the Netherlands. Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and take care. Thank you very much indeed, and, and thanks very much for the, for the questions. Thank you.